Hi there, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports, History and Today. Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Glenn Stout, the author of Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, America's original gangster couple. A full-time author, he's written, ghost-written, or edited nearly 100 books. He's also a writing coach. Thanks so much for being here, Mr. Stout, the Hank Aaron of writing. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I'll take it. Thank you. <laughs> All right, there you go. Uh, uh, take it. Whenever anyone compares you to Hank Aaron, you take it. Uh, before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support. In keeping the show going, go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. If Glenn is the Hank Aaron of writing, then Margaret and Richard Whitmore are the Barry Bonses of crime. Before there, was a Bonnie, before there was a Bonnie and Clyde of the 1930s, there were the Whitmores of the 1920s. I don't want to use the word celebrity, but Glenn argues they invented the romanticized idea of the couple who loves each other almost as much as they love crime, and that by doing so, they found a cult following. You say, Glenn, that never before had the American press discovered a pair like them, young, quotable, photogenic, representative of the age. Their story brought all the excesses of the Roaring Twenties to life. Before, though, they became the Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid. Who were Richard and Margaret of Baltimore? Well, they were just two working-class kids. Uh, Margaret uh, and Richard both grew up in the 15th Ward of a working-class neighborhood where they were grammar school sweethearts. And, you know, Margaret was from an immigrant family. Richard was from a family that was well thought of in Baltimore. They'd been involved in a lot of social service work, but they weren't wealthy or anything like that. But, you know, Richard was kind of a bad kid from the start. Uh, at about age 10, he stole some, uh, some silver spoons from a church and started playing hooky and entered the, the juvenile penal system, which spit him out about 10 years later as a full-blown criminal. And every time he would get out and would return to the old 15th Ward, Margaret was there. And when he got out of the Elmira Reformatory uh, after, after being in the Coast Guard and getting in trouble in the Coast Guard, uh, he and Margaret got married. Uh, you know, they were, this was a time where uh, the progressive era was just uh, getting underway. Uh, America was shaking off its Victorian past. And Richard and Margaret were coming of age uh, right after a world war, right after a pandemic, and then were dropped right into a, a major depression. It was a time where they didn't have many other options. Margaret as a woman, she didn't have any options. She worked as a, uh, as a telephone operator. And Richard, due to his criminal record, uh, had a hard time getting a job. So collectively together, they decided to find another way and with prohibition raging and uh, everything seemingly available, if you had the money, uh, they decided to do what they could to get what they wanted. And so what was it about the jazz age that helped to create these characters, both the people and then also how the press portrayed them? You say that it was a time where everything was changing so fast and revealing so many obvious contradictions and inequalities that what made sense yesterday did not make sense today. What a way to put that. 
Right. Well, you know, they were coming into a world that their parents knew nothing about. Richard and Margaret were coming of age at a time where the world was electrified, where people had telephones, where cars were commonplace, where recorded music was available. There were movies. You know, for the first time after World War I, there was leisure time. You could go out at night. And fueled by prohibition, which allowed everybody to flaunt the law and make money, Richard and Margaret looked around and they were looking at a world where, you know, if you looked at the movies, people had everything. But if you were working class kids, you didn't have everything. And how were you going to get there? You could have everything if you had money. They didn't have money. And Margaret put it very simply one time when somebody asked her, you know, why she, you know, hooked up with Richard and, and why they embarked on this, on this spree, she says, well, he promised me good times and all these nice clothes. And it was, it was sort of that simple for her. And for Richard, when they asked him, you know, why he became a criminal, he just kind of laughed and he said, easy money. You know, they could have, he could have become a bootlegger, but bootlegging took a lot more work than diamond heists. You know, diamond heists could take place in five or 10 minutes. Uh, if you were bootlegging, you really had to work. Richard and Margaret were kind of skimming off the top of prohibition. Cash was flowing everywhere. Liquor was flowing everywhere. And they found a way to get theirs. Before we uh, get a little bit more in depth into how they pulled off their crimes and how their lives kind of turn into these really, you know, kind of on the run situations, um, I want to just talk about the nicknames because we got to find out how they became the Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid. Um, and you say that uh, real blood was spilled, real people died, real kids were left orphans, real women became widows. You say Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid were among the first to drive a stiletto into the swollen balloon of the era. What perfect nicknames, I guess, for two criminals. Yeah, they really were. In fact, that's what first attracted me to them. When I was researching another book about 15 years ago, I came across these headlines for Tiger Girl and Candy Kid. And they were so evocative, I was drawn to them immediately. But then I discovered that they provided just a wonderful entry point into an entire era. Tiger Girl came about, she was dubbed that by by the press and by the police when they were arrested the first time. Richard and Margaret and the rest of the gang were in an apartment. The police busted in, somebody hit the lights, and Margaret's first action wasn't to throw up her hands and say, oh, you know, take me. Her first move was to pass out the guns. Uh, and uh, so they dubbed her Tiger Girl, which was a name that had been given in the past to flappers gone bad, young women who had been swayed by their male counterparts into a life of crime. In fact, there's a particularly notorious case in California where a 16 year old girl was dubbed Tiger Girl after she killed her mother with a hammer when her mother told her she couldn't go dancing. So that's how Tiger Girl got her name. Richard got his name a little later and that was because a candy kid had a, several meanings, all of which fit Richard perfectly. One was a candy kid was a smooth talker, a guy who could talk a girl into anything and Richard was very glib. He was a bit of a sociopath, but people liked him. He could turn on the charm like that. Candy also was slang for drug use, particularly cocaine. And people might be surprised to realize there was a lot of cocaine and opium use in the 1920s, and the gang indulged in that. And then candy was also slang for diamonds. So by calling Richard the candy kid, 
and pairing him with Tiger Girl, all of a sudden, these weren't just two random characters. They were a romantic coupling. They were a headline. And the tabloid newspapers, which were just coming of age in the 1920s, selling crime on the street corner every morning, once they had Tiger Girl paired with Candy Kid, they had a story they could sell. Uh, you know, and their peers, Margaret and Richard's peers, they looked at them not with disdain, but they looked at them with envy. They wanted to have the life that Richard and Margaret were living. Um, I heard you talk about what originally drew you to this story. Uh, and I want to ask about sources, you know, because when I interview an author of presidential history, I don't have to ask where they found Richard Nixon's papers. I don't have to ask where, you know, they found Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton's papers. Uh, the papers are the papers, and they're generally stored in one or two or three buildings, uh, certainly if they belong to the actual president. Um, and uh, uh, it's a self-explanatory answer. My guess is that Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid do not have their own presidential library. <laughs> or place right. where, so, right. place where someone made sure to store all of their papers. So, uh, or if they right. even had papers. So, where did you find all these sources? Yeah, you know, um, often if you go back and you're trying to look up the criminal history of a historical figure, you might go to the FBI files, which was the Bureau of Investigation in the 1920s. But Richard and Margaret sort of preceded that. I did file FOIA requests. Nothing came back. Their story is told primarily through the newspaper coverage. And what you have to realize <clears throat> is during that time period, uh, every major metropolitan area didn't just have one or two newspapers. They had five or six or seven. So through the accumulation of facts from various stories, you can start to build a three-dimensional picture. What I liken it to is, you know, I might have one story of, of one jewel heist that might mention the, the make of the car they escaped in. Another might talk about how they're dressed. Another might make mention of what they said. Another might say how the, how the victims reacted. Well, if you put all that together, you can create a three-dimensional portrait, all based in fact. You're not making anything up, but you're, you're layering information. I was also helped out by the fact that Richard, towards the end of his uh, criminal career, he actually published a 15,000 word biography that he sold to the newspapers, which, although very self-serving because he didn't do anything, it was everything was everybody else's fault, and Margaret knew nothing about anything. Uh, at the same time, it did provide a lot of basic facts that I was then able to check through. He was accurate in many instances, except for motivation, <laughs> Where, in which case. So that's how you do it. And, and so you look at literally hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of newspaper stories, and you create this picture, not only of them, but of their time and of the places where they operated. And we should talk about the places where they operated. Um, say a word about Baltimore. Um, you say that Baltimore was the city that was stuck in the past until a fire swept through. Yeah, you know, Baltimore had been, uh, people don't realize that 100 years ago, Baltimore was the sixth biggest city in the country. And it was an industrial powerhouse. But Baltimore's time was beginning to fade, particularly right after World War I, when the war industry shut down and the U.S. Was, was, was dumped into a very brief but severe depression. Baltimore kind of never recovered. 
it had always been a place where it was easy to get a job in the in the local industry but that wasn't the case when Richard got out of prison so you know they had to kind of cobble together a life any way they could and you know Baltimore made Richard and Margaret but Baltimore was not their goal <laughs> you know they looked at the really big city in fact when they first got married even though they had no money they escaped and went to Manhattan for a couple of days where they, you know, looked through restaurant windows and walked through Midtown and saw how the other half lived. And while they were seeing how the other half lived, they were determined that they were going to live that lifestyle. They were going to be in those restaurants. They were going to be in those cabarets. They were going to live in those fabulous apartments where fabulous clothes drive Cadillacs and locomobiles and the most expensive automobiles that were available then. That's the lifestyle they wanted. One thing that struck me about the sources that you used is what you said about the fact that newspapers loved crime so much, you know, and, and I work for, you know, for a news outlet today and, um, the, the victims are the heroes. The victims are the people right. we focus on. The victims are the people who gain the sympathy and who become the, other than very rare occasions, become the focal point of a story. What happened to the person who was unassuming? Um, what was it about that era and about that time period in the media where newspaper reporters found that they could tell a more interesting story that would sell more papers if they focused on the criminals? Because they were uncovering a new subculture um, that really hadn't been seen before. It always strikes me when I'm, re when I'm you know, reading anything about Richard and Margaret, how it seems like they're imitating the movies. In fact, the movies that they're imitating <laughs> didn't exist yet. They're setting the template. So, you know, the, the, the tabloid journalists, the so-called jazz journalists of the era, they're discovering this underground lifestyle of the gangster in an era of lawlessness uh, where there isn't much respect for the law. You know, the assumption is not that the police are heroes or that the politicians are heroes, it's that they're crooks. They're getting paid to look the other way so everybody can make money during prohibition. So there isn't this assumption that the police are heroes. They're just as crooked as everybody else. And the newspapers exploited, you know, that lifestyle that the criminals were living, which was much more exciting for readers than the poor widow who was left behind. Um, they didn't really even think about the victims there. And I'm actually glad you brought that up because, you know, you, you do kind of face that when you're writing these stories is that, yes, real people were killed. It's celebratory of the age in one sense, but it's also very, very sad. And, um, you know, they just found a story that they could sell and they were about selling newspapers and people wanted to read about the people who were getting away with it. They didn't want to read about the people whose lives were being destroyed. You know, it was a tough time. A lot of people were having tough lives, but Richard and Margaret were getting away scot-free for a time. That was exciting. That's what people aspired to. It's shocking in some ways that their peers, other young flappers and sheiks, which is what the boyfriends were called, 
that they didn't look at Richard and Margaret with, with any kind of disdain at all. They looked at them with envy. They wanted to be them. They wanted to have those fabulous clothes. They wanted to, to act like, you know, there were no restrictions on their behavior, take what they wanted. That's what everybody wanted back then. Well, I, I'll tell you, whenever I hear people bash the media today, I, um, I think about the fact that, um, that it, it ain't so bad when you look, and there are certainly problems, <laughs> But when you look at how it was done in the 1920s and in the 1860s and, you know, even at some points during the 1940s and 50s, you know, you have to look at the media and say, uh, we've certainly come a long way. Uh, well, sure. we, I mean, one of the points that I make is, you know, there aren't these penetrating psychological profiles of Richard and Margaret being written in the newspapers at the time. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not digging that deep into their motivations they're just presenting, you know, what they did, and which is a real challenge, particularly in terms of Margaret, because the press tended to ignore women uh, much more so than men. So I kind of had to tell her story more through the era, the, the era of the flapper, um, than I did Richard, who was much more active and a, and a participant than Margaret was. All right. So take me on a caper. Let's talk about how these crimes went down. Um, take us along for the ride here. If we were to start with the start... Uh, from the moment they woke up on the morning of a crime that they were ready to commit, what would we see? And then how would we watch them go throughout their day to the point where they jump in the car or whatever they're in and zip off? Sure. Well, the, the story that I opened the book with is one of their most famous jobs where they, they managed the, they and the gang managed to steal some diamonds from Albert Goodvish, who was a diamond dealer in Midtown Manhattan. Now, Richard had hooked up in prison with these two brothers, the Kramer brothers, and they were legends. They had invented the can opener system of cracking safes, been arrested in Europe, escaped while being extradited from London, came to America, went right back into cracking safes, got caught. And then they met Richard in prison and they realized that they couldn't use the same method when they got out because they get caught again. It was a signature. The signature method to using the can opener. So they decided Richard would become the can opener. They would use their brains to do all the planning and Richard would be the muscle. So for instance, the Kramer brothers with the assistance of some of the other gang members would suss out where, whether someone they were going to rob, whether that was a jewelry store, whether that was a diamond uh, dealer walking down the street. And in this instance, they got word that this one diamond dealer was receiving this shipment of diamonds worth anywhere from about 125 to $500,000. They realized he walked them from, he would walk them from the bank where they were stored to his office. They tailed him over a period of weeks. And then they assigned a job to every member of the gang because they realized at one point he would walk in front of this vestibule of an abandoned building. And if they did a lightning strike, shoved him into the vestibule, cracked him over the head, they could steal the diamonds and get away. Well, everybody in the, in the gang had a job. Richard was one of the guys that was going to crack him on the head. They also had a couple of guys stationed on the corner. Margaret's job was the classic gun mall. She carried the guns for the gang because there was a law in New York at the time called the Sullivan Act, which meant that if you were a convicted felon and you were caught with a gun, that was almost an automatic sentence. So the gang members didn't want to carry all the guns themselves. So they would use Margaret. The guns would be kept in a locker in Penn Station. 
Margaret on the morning of the crime, as I start the book, she's getting up with Richard. They know this job is going down. Margaret goes over to Penn Station. She picks up the guns. They all meet up. Richard distributes the guns for all the gang members. They all take their assigned positions. Some are watching, some are driving, some are supporting roles. And then as this Albert Goodfish walks down the street and gets in front of the vestibule, Jake Kramer tips his hat, letting everybody know our target is right behind me. The gang swarms him, pushes him into the vestibule, cracks him over the head, Richard does, with a massive pistol. They steal the diamonds, they jump in the car, and they're gone in about 10 seconds. Maybe a half dozen people on the street even know that a job went down. And then what did they do afterwards? They would scatter, Margaret would return the guns, and the Kramers would already have the diamonds fenced even before they were stolen. They knew what they were going to steal. So they had that arranged. The gang would get back together, distribute the proceeds, and then they'd split up again until the Kramers called everyone back together with another job. They had everything timed down to the second, and they could duplicate this over and over and over again. And they did. And the police, in fact, for a long time, didn't even know that the gang was operating. They knew there were a lot of uh, robberies going on in New York. They didn't realize that the biggest and the best were all being done by this one group of young men. Do we know a total? Were you able to come up with a total of A, how many jobs, and B, how much money they made off with? Not specifically. I do know that they stole at least $1 million worth of cash and jewels. They did do one bank robbery. They did cop two jobs worth $1 million, which after being fenced might've taken the gang in about $300,000, $400,000. But $1 million worth of, of gems back then is worth about $15 million today. There was, was speculation after they were arrested that they may have done twice that much because there were other big jobs that they never copped to that had every earmark of the same kind of planning. Uh, so we'll really never know. You know, Richard at one point, and this is kind of like drives the story into, into overdrive, you know, he says that he'll confess to everything if they'll just let his dear wife Margaret go. And he does confess to nothing. He doesn't really know the Kramer brothers. Margaret thinks he's a bootlegger. Richard did all the planning. He was the brains of the racket. Um, but it, it forces the police into this position where they do have to let Margaret go, even though Richard really didn't tell him anything they already didn't know, and he didn't tell him anything that implicated anybody else. But what happened that by, by falling on his sword, uh, you know, confessing to save his dear wife, that made a romance for the ages. That lifted their story and made it uh, not just a local story, but that made it a story coast to coast. This, you know, this tough guy with a heart, his devoted young wife, they would do anything for each other. I guess jail is still filled with innocent people, right? Um, <laughs> uh, 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 it appears to work for a while. I mean, it does work for a while. They take oh, yeah. in tons of money. And one of the, I forget the, the math that you use, but basically they are making enough money to live many lifetimes over for the time period. They turn into, I'm reading it, you know, as I'm reading it, I'm thinking to myself, this is like Wolf of Wall Street. Right. 
<laughs> right. But, you know, Richard and Margaret, the Kramer brothers were actually putting some money away. They were investing in real estate. They were putting money in safety Small deposit part. boxes so they could, they could uh, um, you know, f- mount a defense if they were ever caught. Richard and Margaret were thinking about the next day and the next night. They weren't thinking about, you know, saving for that white picket fence where they could retire. They were thinking about what nightclub are we going to go to tomorrow night? What restaurant are we going to go to? What fur am I going to buy? What car am I going to get? And they're in their early 20s. I mean, that's what people in their early 20s think about, right? They're extraordinarily young. You know, my, my wife is a special ed teacher. She talks about the frontal lobe not being developed, which is, you know, long range planning. Richard and Margaret had no frontal lobe. It was not developed. They never thought of, of tomorrow. They were barely thinking of today, you know. Uh, <laughs> And, 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 you know, for a time period, it worked. They were living that life. They were going to the clubs. They were hanging out with the, with the best known people, the richest people in the city. Uh, and Richard was spending money like it was water. He didn't care if he walked into a cabaret and dropped two, three, four thousand $4,000 in a night. That's hard to do. Well, maybe not hard to do if you're giving a cigarette girl a $100 tip. You know, maybe not hard to do if you're buying the best liquor and you're buying drinks for the house two or 300 people, um, you know, but, but he was, you know, they enjoyed every second of it. Uh, why? Well, let's talk about the cops too, because we, we got to talk about the officers and law enforcement here. Um, why was it so easy for criminals of the day to get away with stuff? You know, we look at it now and there are these shows, CSI and the first 48 and these, these, these officers have all these techniques, thankfully, to solve crime and to figure out who did what and who was where when, and they can look at your cell phone records and they can, as you called it, layer information to figure out what happened. That was not the case back then. No, if you were a criminal, you could be whoever you wanted to be. Uh, false identification was easy to come by. You know, it's not like you had a driver's license with your picture on it or anything like that. So you could you could operate under an alias. And you know, as far as investigations went. Fingerprinting was being used, but only being used for identification. It really, it's not like they were dusting for fingerprints and then comparing it to this file and catching you that way. To catch a criminal, the detectives would study the rogues gallery, which was basically a book of photographs of known criminals. And the best detectives imprinted those images on their mind. And that's how they caught people. You know, they hung around train stations. They hung around hotel lobbies trying to spot somebody. And in fact, when Richard is finally caught, it's because a couple of these policemen who are tailing another gang member with the wonderful name of Shuffles Goldberg, uh, and they're seeing who Shuffles is meeting up with because they know Shuffles is up to no good. And they're in this nightclub in New York, the Club Chantee, and one of the guys finally, you know, the, the, the Rolodex of images is going around in his head and he finally says, hey, that's Dick Whitmore. Baltimore wants him. And Whitmore was, was relatively well known as a fugitive because he'd killed a guard uh, while escaping the penitentiary. So he was a wanted man. And all of a sudden the light bulb went off and that's who it is. And they continue to tail them for a few days. And... They see this young woman, Margaret, and who does she meet up with? The Kramer brothers. Well, what do we have here? What are you doing together? Yeah, looks like we might have something pretty big going on. And, and that's, how they, that's how they eventually got them. 
one theme that goes through uh, this whole book is, and it sounds a lot like today, is the failure of the criminal justice system and the criminal reform system. Every time these guys went into prison, they came out worse. The crimes got more dangerous very quickly. They were absolutely horrible places. Uh, they were horrible places when Richard was put in, uh, you know, reform schools as a young boy. They were horrible places to be incarcerated as an adult. Uh, there's, you know, one statistic, I think, in the Maryland State Penitentiary, one third of all the prisoners had syphilis. You know, they were still using mattresses that were 100 years old. You know, conditions were just horrific. And if you could get out, you did because chances are you weren't going to come out very healthy if you came out at all once you went into one of these places. So they all turned into, you know, schools for criminality. That's certainly the way Richard looked at it once he, he fell under the sway of the Kramer brothers who realized they had this young, ambitious, tough kid that they could manipulate. There's a, there's a great line, another prisoner sees Jake Kramer talking to Richard Whittemore and he says, that kid's gonna be easy meat for Jake. Jake can turn him into anything he wants. Let me tell you something, your description of the mattress, as I was reading the book, actually made me like relatively queasy. That was yeah, it's horrifying. A, I mean, the Maryland State Penitentiary was nearly 100 years old then. <laughs> and, uh, you know, conditions were absolutely abominable. Um, so, you know, no, <laughs> it's no surprise that guys, once they got in, tried to get out. Yeah, right, right, right. I'd do anything to get out. Uh, so know, and the guards were, you know, barely better than criminals themselves. Um, right. You know, they beat people up and they took control by force. And, and probably pretty, uh, pretty easy to pay off really, too, I guess, right? Pardon me? Probably pretty easy to pay off too, right? Well, sure. I mean, guards were making basically minimum wage. Cops were making barely minimum wage. Um, you know, you could you could slip twenty or a hundred to somebody, and they would look the other way. Uh, this was kind of a given during the time period, particularly with prohibition going on, where everybody was being paid off for something somewhere. The murder of a prison guard scraps reform efforts at one of the prisons that that you were talking right. about um it leads jailers to really clamp down on the imprisoned i don't want to make too much of this one event given our justice system is so complicated and has many layers to it and has developed over for many different reasons over many different decades um but did this particular incident start to pave the way for the modern no or little tolerance system that has come under so much fire by advocates for criminal justice reform. Sure, because in Maryland, there had been a reform effort. And the, the uh, warden of the prison, a man named Sweezy, he set up this thing called the Sweezy Club, where, where prisoners could earn privileges. If you earned privileges after dinner, you could all hang out together in a rec room. You could play cards and chess and checkers, listen to music, and they'd have boxing matches. And, you know, he thought it was still possible to reform people. Well, once Richard makes his escape by braining a guard over the head with a lead pipe, the Sweezy Club is shut down immediately. Privileges are gone. Prisoners, if they're not working in one of the contract shops, because that was a big thing in prisons then, you, you, you worked for, for a company in the prison for virtually no money. Um, after that, you had no privileges. If you weren't working, you were in your cell. So you were, you were simply warehoused then. 
and uh, which is, you know, <laughs> leads to some pretty aberrant behaviors when you're, when you're being treated like cattle. So I don't want to ruin the end here um, if I don't have your permission. Um, so uh, am I allowed to say how things end up here? I, I you know, I it's don't okay. think it's a big surprise. There are certainly okay. pictures in the book. So okay. we'll, maybe we'll leave some of the details uh, for readers to discover, but suffice to say it doesn't end well. All right. So <laughs> still buy the book. Um, but one thing I noticed is that the process, the process, and I have, well, the process of execution um, today is much the same as it was back then. Um, now, it certainly takes longer in terms of the court system today. There's no dispute about that. I mean, executions often take 20, 30 years, sometimes 40. Um, back then, it was <laughs> it was very quickly done, days. Um, but otherwise, I, as I w- listened, as I watched, you know, or, or I guess read your um, description of how things wind up here and the last few days before an ex- the execution here, um, uh, I was just struck by how much of it was similar um, because I have reported outside of the Florida State Prison when an execution was taking place. And yeah. it sort of felt a lot like I was witnessing a really similar process. There's a last meal. There's a chance to speak. There's a feeling that the state is making a really, really big choice. Right. Um, for you, as you're as you were writing those passages, what did you want to convey about the lives and the choices that both Richard and Margaret had made? Well, that there are consequences, you know, that although, you know, much of this book is this, is this great careening car ride through the 1920s, um, that that's not all it is. Um, that it left them, it brought them both to a place from which there was basically no return. And this is what happens. And, you know, we haven't made progress as a society in the way we treat prisoners. We haven't made progress as a society in the way we punish prisoners. And, you know, we've been doing this for hundreds of years. And guess what? People are still committing crimes. You know, it's not working. Whatever it is we're doing really isn't working. And, you know, I don't know what could work. But I wanted the, the reader to realize at that last minute that, that there was consequences to this, you know, that um, it wasn't, you know, as I talk about the victims and the victims weren't talked about, but there were, vic- there were also victims in like Richard Whittemore's family. You know, his father is a broken man after this. His brother goes off into a life of crime. You know, Margaret's family is in some ways destroyed by this. Um, you know, they... Uh, they were having a lot of fun, but it, but it, but it came at a certain cost. And, um, you know, that's, that's something I think you always have to think of. Like I said, I don't celebrate them. I try to explain them, I think, more than anything else. Um, celebrate the era in some extent, but not celebrate their actions um, as much as try to explain why their, why their uh, relationship was celebrated by the newspapers why people were drawn towards it. And, you know, and it's fascinating for me that, uh, that we can sit back today and, and, and look and, you know, when Richard would go on trial, there would be hundreds and hundreds of supporters in the courtroom for him. People identified with him. They identified with that aspiration. And, and that says a lot about, you know, 
the lack of opportunities that people had in other areas of their lives at the time in that they could see someone like a Richard and Margaret Whittemore who were flaunting all the mores of society and looking at them with envy and saying, this is who I want to be. Is there a Tiger Girl and Candy Kid of today? Um, you know, only in terms of, I think, notoriety. Um, you know, Richard and Margaret, uh, during their time period, they were probably as well known for about a five or six month period as, you know, Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. Now, Kanye and Kim have not committed all these horrible crimes, but we do see occasionally, um, you know, Gary Gilmore, when he was the executioner's song, when he was being executed, he became something of an anti-hero. And people are still kind of drawn, like in the true crime world, some of the worst murderers are also, you know, people are drawn to them. Richard Ramirez, you know, people are fascinated by the personality and things like that. Um, but though there's not, there's not a Richard and Margaret today. Um, you know, the one change, the one element that isn't, that doesn't exist today that existed back then, even after a war and a pandemic and a depression was the fuel of prohibition that just, you know, took the lid off of everything. And this spirit of utter lawlessness where the law was not respected. Everybody was on the take. You knew it. Everybody was a cheat. You knew it. So there wasn't a real lot of empathy towards the law. That's the difference today. You don't have that fuel of prohibition. Is it more important to focus on crime as always being about the drugs, money, and jewels? Or is it more important for us as a society to focus on it for the psychological rush that it gives to the criminal? So in other words, were you able to figure out if they liked the stuff or if they liked being on the run? Well, you know, that's a great question because... At a certain point, Richard and Margaret wallowed in the attention. They loved the fact that they were in the newspapers every day and that Richard could hold court in jail in front of reporters and Margaret could give speeches on the steps of the, of the penitentiary talking about her, her loving husband. Because, you know, let's face it, this is a time period where, you know, if you swallowed goldfish or sat on a pole, you were suddenly in the paper, you were famous, you could be famous just for being famous. And that's what happened to Richard and Margaret. They became famous sort of just for being famous. And I also think that, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, the focus now in, in, in many books of this type are, are on the victims and, and that's all good and well, and, and there should be some focus on it. But at the same token, if we ignore why people became, become criminals and what the attraction is for them, we're also missing something, okay? And we're not addressing that, that when you feel that every other door is closed, and I think Richard and Margaret felt that every other door was closed to them. When you're put into a position like that, this is the kind of thing that can happen. Yes, most people aren't going to, uh, you know, pull out guns and, and, and steal everything. Some people do, you know? And um, we have to recognize that. And until that's recognized and dealt with kind of at that basic level, we're never going to get down to really the root cause and be able to treat the root causes of why these things take place. I was struck by the fact that Margaret died in 1993, which means that she was not a relic of the past when I was born. Often I read about people who have been dead right. long before. 
I was born. I was born in 83. She's dead in 93. That means we shared the earth and I was likely in Baltimore um, before she, she passed away. Um, what does this story reveal about our time on earth? Um, you can be talked about every moment and then we all just move on like you were never here. It's, it's, it's fleeting, isn't it? You know, Richard and Margaret could be as well known as, as any two people on the planet and then utterly forgotten. You know, once the 1930s come along and the FBI, you know, J. Edgar Hoover decides he's going to make criminals famous because if he makes them famous, if he creates a public enemy, number one, and then catches him, then they can get more funding from the government. So they create Dillinger, they create Bonnie and Clyde, they promote Dillinger and Bonnie and Clyde and Pretty Boy Floyd, and they put them on the newsreels, and they create this, <laughs> this whole aura around them for their own purposes. But, you know, we, we are fleeting on this earth, and I think it's fascinating that, you know, Margaret, from everything I've learned, and I've learned a little bit more since the book came out, that, you know, she just recedes and goes on to live a very quiet life. Maybe the frontal lobe came in. I actually did speak to someone who knew her in, in her later years. And it was fascinating because he said she was, she was partially deaf and she was very hard to talk to. Um, but he said there was a certain swagger about her that she still, she still had this swagger, you know, because she remarried, she had a daughter and went on and lived a quiet life. But, uh, but even in her, her elderly years, there was something about her, a spark in her that was, that was very, very unique. You know, she remembered, she knew what she'd done, even though apparently no one in her family had any idea that, uh, that she had this in her past. Did the person you spoke to know? No. They didn't until, know? Not until I'd contacted them, no. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was, that was fascinating to me. It was a, a distant relative. You know, Richard, uh, uh, Richard's family, all of his siblings died, so there's no heirs. Um, and Margaret, after remarrying, it took me a long time to try to track that down. I tried to approach her daughter to see if her daughter wanted to contribute, but she's 90 years old herself. But through an intermediary, an, another distant relative, uh, she was asked, she chose not to participate. But this other relative, you know, told me the story about about meeting Margaret. He, he knew her a little bit. And he said there was just a certain swagger about her. Um, you so, almost you wish know. she'd gone, sit down for a moment. I want to tell you a story. About yeah, this you know, it's, uh, wouldn't you have loved to talk to her at age uh, 80 or 90? Tell me what things were like. Right. What were um. They're not remembered by name, generally speaking. Um, maybe this book will change that. Did they leave things behind that are still with us and unmistakably theirs? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I argue, you know, as I said earlier, when you read about their exploits, it seems like they're imitating the movies, except those movies didn't exist before Margaret and Richard. Uh, they were the original gangster couple they were indulging in these behaviors that were later celebrated in the movies of the 1930s, gangster films about the 1920s, many of them written and produced by the very reporters who reported on Richard and Margaret in the 1920s. So that when we see, uh, for example, His Girl Friday and Earl Williams is 
in a cage in a jail. Well, Richard was kept in a cage in a jail. And when we watch the, the movie, The Roaring Twenties, there are elements of Richard Whittemore and there's elements of, you know, Margaret is the, the archetype for the gun mole. She's, she's the quintessential gun mole. Um, so that life in the movies continues even to this day. Those are standard archetypes in films even to this day, whether they're period pieces in the 20s or 30s, or whether there's something much more contemporary. We're still fascinated by people that, for whatever reason, decide that the rules don't apply to them, and they're gonna try to get what they want, no matter what. Glenn Stout, the author of Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, America's original gangster couple. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much. I enjoyed this. Certainly check out that book and also his Twitter feed, which is at Glenn Stout. His website is glennstout.com. I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.